0: Okay, so we're going to continue our series on great Jewish photographs. So uh, I'm just going to jump around randomly to different photographs in my book. Uh, this one is on page 78. Um, there is a, uh, a great Rosh Shiva. His name is Rabbi Yakov Yaakov Pam. Rabbi Pam was Rosh Ben in Tarvadas. Uh, he looked like this. This is a picture of him, if you could see it from there. He was known as a very big tzaddik. He was a, a tremendous talmud chacham, a great leader. He founded um, a lot of uh, organizations, specifically shuvu, to help Russian immigrants that are that are coming to Israel, uh, you know, have proper education for their children. So, and he was uh, there's a whole big biography written about him of all of. Uh, You know, how special he was and how what a tzaddik he was. People used to refer to him as the Chavitz Chaim of America. He's very makbid on Lashon Hara, and he didn't like that name whenever he would be called that. He would, you know, uh, uh, not be too happy because he was very modest and humble, and he didn't think that he should be compared in any which way to the Chavitz Chaim, which is understandable, but that's, you know, what they used to refer to him as. Now, he was Rashiva, as I said, in a yeshiva called Tarvadas, which is in Brooklyn. And when he turned 80 years old, so his yeshiva uh, commissioned a Sefer Taira to be written in his honor. You know, a lot of yeshivas uh, do this as maybe as a fundraiser and then they make a big party afterwards and, uh, you know, people contribute to the yeshiva in his honor. And um, this took place in the year, uh, what year was this? Probably 1993. No? Well, I think it says on, it was 1996 when it was actually completed. I guess they started it in 1993 when he turned 80. And when the completion ceremony um, was about to be ready, when they were about to complete the sabbaturist, they had to publicize the fact that there was going to be a very big Hanukkah Simchas Sefer Taira, that they were going to bring the Sefer Taira into the yeshiva, they were going to finish it in Rapam's home, and in order to publicize it, this is again back in the day before there was uh, WhatsApp and uh, all types of other ways of getting the word out, so then they did it the old-fashioned way, they basically put flyers on storefronts and on trees and you know, we see them also on Main Street, you see flyers all over the place, and in Brooklyn, uh, it's no different. So um, one day, Rabbits and Pam noticed that one of those posters was hanging on their non-Jewish neighbor's tree. So she thought that the yeshiva was just like, in a, you know, just like putting them all over, including people's trees, And she got very upset. She was embarrassed. Like, what are you putting it on my guy's guy's neighbor's tree for? So she felt terrible and she went to the neighbor to apologize. And the Robinson explained to her that she had no idea why anyone would place a sign on their front lawn and that she would remove it at once. But the neighbor responded the following. She said, Mrs. Palm, you don't understand. We are so proud to be neighbors of the rabbi. When we noticed this poster on a lamppost, we removed it and hung it on our tree. So they were actually the ones to take it off of a lamppost and put it on their tree because they were so proud to have Rapam as their neighbor. These weren't Jewish people. They didn't know Rapam, you know, what he was exactly. They just knew that he was a very pious individual. And, um, and so this is Rapam. Rapam was a person who was loved by all. Uh, and, as the in Yuma says that that the greatest uh, compliment, the greatest uh, virtue that a person could attain in this world is if the name of heaven becomes beloved through you, if we walk around our you know on the street and wherever we go, and we make a Kiddush Hashem. Uh, we go into the post office and we, you know, if there's somebody walking in behind us, we hold the door for them. We say good morning to random strangers. We're nice to the security guards. We're nice to the, to, the, uh, to the janitors in yeshiva and to whoever it is that we deal with. Anyone, that will bring Hashem's name to be beloved. Because people say, wow, that's an Orthodox Jew. An Orthodox Jew is well-behaved, well-mannered. They're friendly. They're nice. They have uh, good midas. Uh, if we don't, then of course that's a terrible reflection on on us and on on the Torah and on Hashem. So we always have to try to emulate uh, Rapam. Rapam was a person who. It's a pretty cool thing to have. A, imagine having a non-Jewish person specifically take a sign down from a lamppost and put it on their front lawn just because they're so proud of having such a chash, chash of a neighbor. Anyway, the 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 graphic that I used for this is. And it was very hard to get. It was, I had to go back to the 90s and try to find a picture of that poster. I wanted to get that poster. Now, the truth is that I didn't actually find the picture of the poster. I called everyone that I could possibly, nobody had it anymore. You know, They used it and it was done. Who saves posters? But they did have uh, a cover of the program of that event with the same image of Rapam. This is what, this is what it, you see it says, Hachnasah Sefer this was the, when they brought the Sefer Torah in, in honor of the Rashi Shiva. They had a picture. This is the same picture that was on the poster. And then it says the date and the Torah Vadas uh, logo. But I thought that was a cool graphic to, to be able to show, to bring this story to life. Okay, any questions, comments, suggestions? Okay. So let us do another one. Okay, this is a great one. Uh, anyone ever hear of Rav Shach? This is what he looked like. He was, uh, the, I would say, one of the greatest leaders of, of his time. He lived from 1899 to 2001. He was Rashiva of Panovich. But more than Rashiva of Panovich, he was also, which is itself a very, you know, Rashivas of Panovich are generally the greatest Tamidicham in the world. Shmuel Rozovsky and Rav Shach and uh, Rav and and, uh, you know, Mashkichim. they had Rav Desler there and Rav Levinstein. The list goes on and on. It's always, the you know, an all-star team in Panovich. It's interesting, by the way, why Panovich had an all-star team because it was founded by the Panovich Shorov. The Panovich Shorov, his name was Rav Kahneman. I'm sure we'll be speaking about him in a, in a different class in Ritz Shem. Uh, I'll just look as I'm talking to see if I can find a picture of him. But he survived the Holocaust and he, um, he went to Teretz Israel to, uh, to rebuild his community of Panovich. Panovich as a community was completely decimated by the Nazis. They destroyed the community, the shul, the yeshiva, the Beis Yaakov. It was a very big community, very big city. And he escaped the, the Panevich River of Kahneman and he came to Israel. Israel. And he founded the yeshiva of Panavich. He only had one son that had survived with him. And that son was not, I guess, uh, I don't know. If, he wasn't uh, He wasn't maybe a reshiva material. I think he helped him run the yeshiva, but he wasn't a yeshiva. So, so the Panavich used to say that my tragedy, my personal tragedy is Klaus Yisrael's success. Why? Because he says, let's say I had... I had many sons that would have survived. So I would have put them all in different positions in the yeshiva. I would have made one reshivah, one mashkiach, one... That's what you do, you know. It becomes a family business, and you put in your own family. Now, what's... It's a beautiful thing to have family, but what's the, what's the downside of putting family into, into yeshiva? Is there a downside? The downside is that, he, that just because it's your children... That doesn't mean that they're the best teachers. It doesn't mean that they're the best rabbis, that they're the biggest hamidacham. They happen to be your kids, but that doesn't mean you know, that, that they're qualified necessarily to be. So he says, because I didn't have kids, I had the luxury of being able to hire the cream of the cream, like the creme de la creme. I could get the best hamidacham in Eretz Yisrael and in the world because I didn't have to put my children in these positions. So he hired the best Rosh Yeshivas, the best Meshkifim, and that's how he created the great Yeshiva of Panavich. So Rav Shach was a, uh, a tremendous, he was like a, the leader of Kal Yisrael, the leader of the Yeshiva world. And Rav Shach loved uh, children. He loved little children. And he always had like a bag of candies, with him, either in his pocket or in his apartment, he would have like a, a cabinet full of candies and whenever there's like a little kid that or many, multiple kids that came to visit to get a bracha, he would always make it his business to go and give the child a candy. So, so I, somebody sent me this picture. Um, and I'm gonna pass it around the room so you can see. It's the cutest picture in the world. A father is holding his daughter as she extends her hand for a candy, and you see in the picture behind her back a candy. She's holding another candy. I mean, Rav Shach had already given her a candy, but she was hiding that. You could see that in the picture, and she was reaching out to get a second candy. And Rav Shach smiles at the attempt, but tells her lovingly that she received one already, and he needs the rest for the other kinder. I just want to show show you... The cutest picture. It's cute, right? Okay, so I, in, in the caption, thank you. In the caption, I, I, I also add the following story that's very, uh, very. Uh, I think it's a good tie-in with this picture. And part of the reason for this book is not just to put cute pictures in, but to, to take lessons out of these stories, okay, out of these pictures. So once when the Mashkiach of Lakewood, his name is Ramatzisio Solomon, who should live and be well, uh, he came to visit Rav Shach. Came to visit Rav Shach, and uh, and they were the two of them were talking, and the Rashiva called over his grandson and offered him a candy from a colorful assortment. He had all he had many different color candies, and he said, "Pick one." And then he says, "You know what? I know which one you want. You probably want the red one." And he told you know that's don't you like well, people generally I think like red. I like green, but like some people like red so he takes out the red one and he, he gives it to, the, uh, to his grandson and Ramatoseo Solomon was sitting right there and he's like just making a joke like light, light, lightheartedly he said the Rashiva is making him into an Esav why, why an Esav? because Esav went on that day remember when he was hungry and what did he say he said give me from the red from that red uh, the, the, whatever you're cooking there that red food give it to me and because of that, he sold the birthright to Yaakov because he wanted that red. So Rav was like, sort of like saying to Rav Shach that, you know, you're making him into an Esav. You're, you're like making him want the red. So Rav Shach says as follows. Rav Shach said, you don't understand. A young child lives in the world of imagination. Something which he's allowed to do because of his tender age. Meaning, when you're young, you're allowed to live in the world of imagination. Like, you know, children, like, for example, um, you know, children think that they're driving a sports car, right? They might be sitting in a cardboard box, but in their mind, they're driving a sports car. If they have a sports car, they have those little cars, you know, with the motors in them, they, they really think that they're driving a real car. If they're playing a Superman, and they have a Superman costume on with a cape, they think that they could fly, and that's good. That's That's what a child is supposed to do. A child should be living in the world of imagination. It's good for a child to be creative and to imagine and to draw and to paint and to think and to to dream. That's what a child should do. But Rav Shach says that the criticism against Esau, that he was going after that red, that fantasy, is that at his advanced age, he had no more business living in the world of fantasy the world of a child. And that's a very important point. Um, you ever see like these uh, like middle-aged guys or old guys and they're like you know in their 60s, 70s and they're driving like a, like a Corvette or the, like a, a Candy Apple Red uh, Corvette or like a Lambo and you know with the roof, the roof down and they think they're cool and like it's pathetic right the guy's like a, an old guy like you know those cars are designed for guys your age they're not designed for like these old guys what, what are you doing in a what, what's an 80-year-old guy 70-year-old guy or somebody my age, for that matter. What would I to do? What, what are you doing in a car like that? That's not for you. That's for kids. It's for it's for you know twenty, thirty year olds. And when a person doesn't understand that, when a person is is older, and he's still running after the red, and red I, red is just a way of saying a fantasy because you know red is the color that we know uh, makes a person full of desire. That's why a lot of uh, a lot of companies have, um, have used use on, la- on their labels red, like Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola, the, that color is not deliberate. Coca-Cola would, instead of being red, if it, would be, uh, if it would be yellow, it wouldn't sell. The whole mile of Coca-Cola is that it's red. That red, like, I want it, you know, you, like it, all the other cans in the thing are no good and like you want it. That's why sometimes they change like the, the color, like ketchup is red. Okay, it's from a tomatoes. they make red, but sometimes they make ketchup uh, a different color. You ever see that they try different colors, like green? Ever see, like, Heinz green ketchup? It doesn't sell. They never, it never. people don't want it. You want red ketchup. You want things to be red. Red means that you have a desire for it. Red stirs up, like, the fantasy. It's a, it's a color, for whatever reason, that's the way it is. Every color has its own appeal. Red is a color that, so when... Esav at his advanced age, Asa wasn't a kid anymore, when Asa was at his advanced age, he was still going after the red. He said, give me from that red porridge. The red, he didn't even call it like what it is. He didn't even say bean soup, cholent, whatever. He says, give me the red stuff. What does that mean give me the red stuff? He called it red because he was going after his taiva. He was going. He, he thought that he was still able to pursue a fantasy like a child. A child is allowed to. Rav Shach was saying that I could give a child a red candy that's healthy at, at a child's age, at a young person's age. They should be imagining and dreaming and fantasizing about, you know, about things that are good, things that are attractive, things that are appealing. But the problem is that when you get older, you have to be, you have to, you have to live in an age appropriate manner. Like it's cute if you see. You know, a kid playing a Rubik's Cube. Sometimes you go, like, and you see, like, older people playing Rubik's Cube, and it looks weird. Like, what are you doing? You're, like, 70 or you're 60 years old. You're still playing a Rubik's Cube. Is that normal? It's not normal to play a Rubik's Cube at that age. It's not normal to, like, you know, whatever. You know, if a, you know, if a, if a kid does... Uh, sometimes you see by chasness, at least back in the old, they don't do it so much anymore. When I was, like, bar mitzvah age, and, you know, and you can ask your parents or whatever they used to take napkins and tie them together and make like a whole chain and then they would start like jumping rope. You ever, see, ever go to a that they do that? Uh, it used to be every chat. Now I don't see anyone doing it anymore. Those people are lazy. They don't, you know, don't want to start tying all those napkins together. But sometimes, you know, the kids, the guys your age or whatever or younger, they're going, they're jumping rope. That's fine. Sometimes you see like these old women or old men and they're like, it's like pathetic. Don't, don't, you don't want to do that. That's not for you. You know, but they don't understand that. They still think that it's normal to do that, and and so, Asav the time against of, What are you going after? You're you're not a kid anymore. You're still going after like mature. Like you 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 don't need to go after those fantasies. That's not age appropriate. Age appropriate is you know for a child to to go after something that's interesting to, for him to expand his imagination. That is that's appropriate. But we have to do things. In an age-appropriate manner. Okay, let's see. Um, let's let's see one more. Okay, we have time for one more. Baruch Hashem. Let's find a good one. Okay, this is a picture. It's on page one eighty. Uh, it's a picture of Shlemizam in and Arabach. Shemizalman Arbach was the Paisak Hadari was the greatest one of the greatest paiskim, the Halachic rule deciders in the generation. And he was Rashiva of Kalter, which is where I went to Yeshiva. This is a picture of him giving Shir approximately when I was there. It was like the year the the semester, this man before I came into his Shir, this was the Shir. So I'm not in this picture. But it was right. It was like the same tkuf for the same year. I was like mamish a month after this picture was taken. Rav, Sh- Rav, Sh- Rav, Sh- Rav, Sh- Rav used to sit on like a little bit of an elevated platform. His desk would be higher, and there would be talmidim like surrounding him, like in a like a ches, like around around him. And um, he always had a cup of tea, and his gemara and his machberet, his little notebook. Um, I'll tell you a cute story before we get to this picture. Um, I'll just tell you the picture first. So, just uh, basically, uh, the person who took this picture of Shlomo Zalman uh, quipped, he said, "Had you told me in advance, I would have worn my Shabbos attire. I mean, I would have gotten dressed for Shabbos had I known that you were going to be taking my picture." But every picture of Shlomo Zalman, he's always smiling always smiling. it's very rare, very, very rare to find a picture of Ripp So he always had a smile on his face. And he once gave advice to a young Talmud he said, live well, I'm sorry, he said like this, this is advice for life that he gave to him. Learn well, you have to learn Torah well, eat well, sleep well, and always smile. Those are the four things that Yeshua Bakr has to learn how to do. You have to learn well, you have to eat well, sleep well, get a good night's sleep every night. Don't wake don't go to sleep three in the morning, wake up at seven. Just try to get like a good six, seven, eight hours of sleep and always smile. And that's really what he did. He always smiled. So that's how that's advice for life. Now I just want to tell you um, two personal stories about about when I was in Shire with Rosh Hashanah in Ushan Shir. So, the person who was in this period, like right before me in his shear, had a job, and I inherited that job. After he left, I got this job. What was the job? The job was at the end of shear. you go over to Shleman Zalman. I went over to him. My friend before me went over to him. He would give me his key to the office um, and his and his, his his little notebook, and uh, I would run to the other side of the building, open the, use the keys to open his office, put his notebook on his desk, get his hat, and run back to to give him his hat, his Yerushalmi hat, together with his key, and then he would go straight to the base matters to the mincha, like we're going to be doing in a few minutes. So, so my friend went over to him one day after Shirin, and he. You know, he was waiting to, for him to give him the keys and the keys weren't in his pocket. He was like getting, you know, nervous. Like, what happened to my keys? You know, that feeling like, I don't know what I did with my keys. So my friend said, maybe the Rashiva left it in his office. Let me go. I'll run back to the office. See, maybe the keys are in your office. Okay. Anyway, my friend goes back to the office and the door was open and he looks on his desk the keys weren't there. He looks under the desk, keys weren't there, he looks on the bench, on the chair, on the keys weren't anywhere. And then he sees that Urshlaizaman's coat, his overcoat, is hanging like on a hook or on a hanger in the in the office. He says he probably left his keys in his in his coat pocket. So he went and he put his hands in his in his pocket, and sure enough, the keys were there. They're so happy, the is gonna be so happy. He goes back, he runs back, you know, he slides on the marble floor all the way until he gets to the yeshiva. And, um, and he says, Yeshiva, I found the keys. And Rosh Hashanah Zaman's normal smile just got much bigger. And he says, oh, he said, thank you so much. He's telling me, where were they? He says, um, were they on my desk? He says, no, they weren't on the yeshiva's desk. He says, were they on, on my chair? No, they were they on the floor? No, were they in the bathroom? No says, So where were they? So he said, They were in the Rashiva's coat pocket. At that point, as soon as he said that, Rosh smile vanished, which is something that never happened. He was always smiling. Suddenly, he got very serious. His face started turning beet red. And he said, Tell me again where you found the keys. He says, yeah, They're in the Rashiva's coat pocket. So he says, I don't understand. He says, let me understand this correctly. You took your hand and you put it into my coat pocket? You took your hand. He says, yeah, that's it. He says, you took your hand and put it into my coat pocket. You don't see anything wrong with that? He says, maybe when your hand was in my coat pocket, you took my wallet also? And my friend told me that, he says, if I would have a shovel right then and there, I would have dug my own grave. He says, I was so embarrassed. And Rav Shemizam wasn't trying to embarrass him, by the way. Rav Shemizam was trying to teach him a lesson, and it's a very important lesson. And I learned a great lesson from that story, and hopefully you'll learn a great lesson from the story, that you're not allowed to go into somebody's personal space. You're not allowed to enter somebody else's personal space. You could look on the floor, you could look on a desk, you can look in a you know on a chair, but you don't go into somebody else's private domain. A coat pocket is somebody's private place. You don't put your hand in there. Even if you have the best of intentions, no one if you don't have reshuss to put your hand, in, you don't have permission, then you can't do it. And this is so pertinent to everything how many times you know do we you know I don't know let's say your friend you're looking for uh looking for something so you open your friend's locker you open your friend's desk drawer or you open your friends or your kids or your parents or whatever uh knapsack you know you look in your wife's pocketbook that's really a bad idea by the way but um you never know what you're gonna but you know You don't go into somebody else's domain. What somebody else's is is somebody else's. You don't look in somebody else's, uh, you know, a lot of people, they have a thing. They go into other people's bathroom. Let's say you're invited to somebody's house for Shabbos. You use the bathroom. Like some people, believe it or not, Yentas, they they look in people's medicine chest. Oh, what what medications is this guy on? (laughs) You know, he's like, oh, Prozac, okay. And uh, the wife is obviously having some heart issues and, uh, you know, (laughs) What else is going on? Like You're able to... People do this. You're not allowed to do that. And I'll tell you something more. There's something that we do that's a lot seemingly more innocent, but maybe it's not. There's something called Google. And sometimes there are people that actually could find out the most salacious details about somebody else's life without even going into their stuff, just by... They know how to use Google. I, I don't know how to use Google so well, but there are people that know. Like I, I once read a shidduch to a talmud. He's probably listening. He's a very loyal talmud, and he hates when I tell he, whatever. But he, you know, he he said, to, you know, I read him a shidduch of a girl. He came back to me like a few hours later. He Says Rabbi, I'm going to take a pass. I said, okay. Did you find that any? Did you you, make, you call the references on the resume? He says, he said no, I didn't need to. I said, well, what'd you do? He said, well, I just, you know, I, I, I know how to use the internet. I found out that, you know, the father is like a couple million bucks in debt and the, more the house is totally beyond mortgage. It's like they're, they're about to default on their mortgage and this is wrong. He almost found out like every single, you know, the grandfather was, uh, was this and the father was that and, you know, he was, you know how to do that. Even if it's technically in the public domain, you don't have the right to like mamish go into, pry into people's private information. If you have permission to do so, if you're working for the FBI, maybe, but like you don't have the right just stomp to, to go and to, and to look in somebody's phone, look in somebody's WhatsApp, look in somebody's emails. You can't do that. That's all, that's all very forbidden. And it's something subtle. Like I'm not stealing somebody from something, but you, you're, you're invading somebody else's space. And somebody else's space is sacred. I'm not allowed to look, you know, into what you have unless you give me permission. So if I'm, I'm using this drawer, like, you know, I shouldn't be looking in the in another Rebbe's drawer because I don't know what the Rebbe's keeping in that drawer. You know, it's not my business. It's not my business to know what... And, and the list goes on and on. You can think probably about a lot of different examples of things that we might do, opening up other people's mail, uh, looking at, uh, you know anything anything a person you know the phone is ringing for a person gets a beep on their cell phone you look who you know who is he talking to who is he texting who is it? it's not your business it's not my business and Rav Shimon taught this Talmud and us this very important lesson that you cannot put your hand in somebody else's pocket figuratively and literally you can you can't do it you can't you cannot go into somebody else's space. And Rav Shalem who was the nicest, I don't want you to walk away from the Shira and boy, boy, he's a tough, you know, really tough Rebbe, tough Rashiva there. Rav Shalem was a tzaddik ador. Everybody that, you know, there's books written about Rav Shalem how he was so nice to everybody. Everybody loved him. He was the sweetest man in the world. But I like this story because it shows the, the, the Rebbe side, not the grandfather side. This is the Rebbe. And the rabbi is trying to teach this Talmud, you know, right from wrong. And, and I'm sure this Talmud never forgot it. I certainly didn't forget it. Um, I'm still close to this Talmud. He lives in, uh lives in, from South Africa. And then the next Zaman, I'll just tell you very quickly, I, I got this job. And I, as you could tell, I, I, like, I like Judaica, I like stuff, I like artifacts. I have books on, on just artifacts of G'daylam. We learned that, we actually went through that book last year great Jewish treasures, and um, so I had this thing that I wanted to get Reb Shleim Azam and Arbach's hat. Every day I was taking his hat, you know, I was bringing him his hat from the, from the office to the to bring it to him, you know, so you can go to mincha with it. It was like a, one of these Yerushalmi, like a furry beaver hat, if you know what I'm talking about, like, you know, that the Yerushalmi you didn't wear. And I, it was all, like, banged up, and I was thinking, like, how am I gonna, you know, get that hat? I want. The, I already like picked out like a lucite case for it with like a label, Rebbe Shlomo Zalman you know. The, and I wanted that hat so bad. So I was thinking maybe I'll go to the store because I knew what size it was, buy him a brand new one, and then like say, you don't want this one, you want this one, right? And like give him that. Like, but I don't think that that would work with him. So I asked like a very close Talmud of his, like uh, an older Kylo guy. I said, tell me, I really want to get you know, Rup Shalem hat, like, why do, give me an eights, like, how do I do it? So he says, I'll give you an eighth, so i I'll give you a piece of advice." he says, instead of trying to get what's on his head, why don't you try to get what's under his hat? Instead of trying to get his hat, why don't you try to get what's under his hat? I said, his yarmulke, yeah. I <laughs> so... He says, no, you, he says, you know, try to learn his Torah, try to get his Chachma, try to get his wisdom, forget the hat. Um, and uh, and Itaka didn't get the hat, I did not get the hat, but maybe I got a little bit of his wisdom, a drop, 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 maybe a little drop of it, but uh, it was a tremendous experience being in a shir, being able to see the face of a tzaddik he took his glasses off before he gave, shi- at the beginning of shir, he literally looked like a Malach Hashem Tzvakas. You see, like, in this picture, he wasn't wearing his glasses, and he, like, uh, he, he looked great when he was wearing his glasses also, but, like, when he took off his glasses for some reason, he literally looked like a Malach was very hard concentrating on the shir because of, you know, the, uh, the, the, the like, the halo, a literal halo that he had around him. And, uh, It was a very, very great schuss. Okay, Rabbi, say we will stop here.